This tape was produced in the spirit of AA's 12th step to carry the message. Members of the fellowship should bear in mind AA's 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, and films in the use of this tape. Anonymity to this extent is actually the practice of genuine humility. We are sure that humility expressed by anonymity is the greatest safeguard that AA could ever have. Thank you, Ted. Hey, everybody, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Mac. <clears throat> now, I bring you all greetings from the Carolina Cure Beach Group, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's about as far as I can carry that. <laughs> I'd like to thank Ted and uh, Pat and Rose and Margaret and Harry and Richie and all the bunch that... Uh, made it possible for me to be here. I want to thank Ted. He, he picked me up at LaGuardia yesterday, and we got here in no time. It only took us an hour and a half to get into the hotel. He couldn't find a way to get in. I see you all are smarter than Ted. <laughs> I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm not a stranger to being asked when somebody else can't make it. Uh, I spoke up in... This, you know, Dr. Tebow said that ego deflation at depth is one of the necessary things for recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not bad, being asked at the last minute. I'm usually asked to leave places. At least I was when I was drinking. Uh, I uh, I would like to, to thank everyone for just giving me a wonderful time at that great dinner uh, at the Chart House last night, in which Richie held forth about firecrackers and stuff for an hour and a half. That was really exciting. It's it's uh, it's wonderful. I I love being sober because now that I don't drink, I can hear what people say and I can say I can see what people write. Uh, most of the time, when I fly out of Wilmington, North Carolina, we we don't have a big airport there, and we have little make-believe planes that fly to a real airport in Charlotte or Raleigh, and then you go where you're going. And there's one plane that I fly on. Sometimes it's it's square. And it only has seats on one side because it tilts to the other side if you don't put every. And it's got a little square door in the back. And I was getting off in, in Raleigh one day from the airplane. And they make you get off the back because they don't have a front door. And they're, they're ashamed to see people getting on and off the airplane. It's, it's got hair under its wings. It's one of those airplanes. And just as I was getting off, the little chubby guy's holding the door open, this little square door. It's about the size of this podium. And he says, watch your head. They said, excuse me? He said, watch your head. I said, how do I do that? <laughs> he said, okay, well, watch your step. So I watched my step and bumped my head getting off the airplane. <laughs> There's a place when I fly out. You, if you ever fly, fly Delta, you could be leaving Seattle, going to Moscow, and you would go through Atlanta. Uh, there's a little place. The guy won't even look at me anymore. You get out, I always go in for a coffee between planes in Atlanta. And there's a little uh, place where I go to get coffee, and to get to the coffee, you have to go past the big pile of ice, stuffed with beer. And leaning up against the ice is a sign that says, thanks for not smoking. <laughs> so I called the guy and said, excuse me, shouldn't this read, thanks for not driving? He didn't think it was funny. Apparently, he didn't either. Uh, in North Carolina, I live on the beach just south of Wilmington. It's a little beach community. We have a lot of tourons, a tourist down there. And one of the things that's required in a, in a fast food store down there, it stays 24, open 24 hours, is a coffee machine, beer coolers, and a hot dog thing. So I'm in there one day, and I look sober. I'm sober, and I look at the sign. It says, warm hot dog buns here. So I went to the guy, and I said, what does that mean? He said, what are you talking about? I says, is here where you warm hot dog buns? Or are there warm hot dog buns in there? Or are these buns for warm hot dogs? <laughs> he says, why don't you just look in there, you stupid son? <laughs> As you can tell, I, I'm not this pale. I, I'm, I'm growing a beard. I'm playing the part of a little thing that I'm doing down there in Wilmington. And people come up to you when you start growing a beard and say dumb things to you. The first one is, are you growing a beard? 
And being an alcoholic is, of course, no, no, I'm not, really. My face is shrinking into my head. And the other dumb thing they come up and say, accusatory, you're growing a beard. Me? Me? I have you know that every adult male in this room is growing a beard. It's an incurable condition of the adult male. can only be arrested by shaving one day at a time. I was born in Guilty, Wisconsin, the same year that A.A. was born. Uh, when my mother read at my knee, who killed Cock Robin, I said, well, I probably did. And uh, it got worse. I went to parochial school, of course. That's a requirement for alcoholism. I, I went to Our Lady of Perpetual Guilt. That's a... It's amazing. I'm not a recovering Catholic or a recovering... I hate it when people say, I'm not recovering from religion. Religion's never been the enemy with me. What's The enemy is alcohol. That stuff is trying to kill me. And uh, unless I uh, do something about it by coming to these meetings and participating in the 12 steps and the 12 traditions, it will. And it's wonderful. My sobriety date, by the way, is July 19th, 1970. And the only reason I mention that is because down in North Carolina, if you don't mention your sobriety date, they assume you don't have one. And they tell you to sit down and shut up. <laughs> yes, I, it's been my experience that it's the not the number of years in AA that counts. It's it's uh, making the years count that's important. I was at a great meeting last night. I'd like to thank the Saint Savior uh, Saturday Night uh, Big Book Group for letting me participate. I looked out over that sea and there was only three other gray hairs in there. That's wonderful. I was 34, almost 35 when I got through the doors of AA, and some old guy, dried up guy, kind of looked like me. God, good to see a young face in here. So for you, as I told the kids last night, I said, you know, I'm going to tell you something that they didn't tell me. If you stay sober, life will get better and you will get older. They didn't tell me that. This could happen to you. So uh, I did not come from a dysfunctional family. Uh, my family functioned very well. We had functions about six nights a week. And uh, I participated. My dad was a former Marine. He tells me there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. He's six foot four. And uh, my mother was a lady. Uh, I have one older sister. Now that she's sober in AA, I'm older. And she's older than I am again. I passed her up somewhere in the 30s. And then when she came into AA about 11 years ago, uh, I, she got older again. So it was a small family. And uh, it was a small, tightly knit group. Uh, Mom handled the drinks. And Dad worked and, and was angry a lot. And I was a small kid and uh, scared. When I got to AA, uh, my sponsor explained to me, I was concerned about my feelings. And explained to me that I only had two feelings that I could get in touch with. One was stark terror. And the other one was rage. And everything in between they would let me know about as I came in contact with them. I'm going to be speaking in Canada in February with Keith L., a good buddy of mine. And the, con the name of the conference is Feelings. And I've had nine months to, to think about this, and I don't think I can go. <laughs> well, let me get in with the drunkalog. Uh, I was taught to drink like a gentleman at home, and I was able to maintain that for a long, long time, until I was about 12. And we lived in Wisconsin, and my, my grandparents lived in a beautiful little town called Kiel, Wisconsin. It was a little German community. It looked like a picture postcard, you know, church steeples, the river running through. And we would go up and visit every summer, and uh, they had the fireman's picnic every year in August, and all the kids would save up their money. The uh, dusty road shows would come in, and they'd have the German oompa bands and the parades and all the rides and the games. We'd save up our money. The kids would save up their money and ride the tilt-a-whirl and puke. Ride the Ferris wheel and puke, and I drank beer and puked. Uh, because in Wisconsin in the late 40s, if you're old enough to get your nickel on a bar, you're old enough to get a schooner of beer. So I came in contact with two things. My first blackout at age 12, and the fact that I was a seeker of poetry and beauty and truth. My Irish grandmother, bless her heart, she was so nice to hear Margaret. I was sitting next to Margaret last night. And across, I've never heard the 12 steps read in English, English before. It's beautiful, Pat. Thank you very much. So I'm across from this lady and Irish. And I was thinking of my Irish grandmother when I was talking to uh, Margaret. And uh, 
she would say nice things about me. Like, Michael's a good lad. He just has a fierce thirst. He's a good boy, but the proof just isn't in him. So I had been throwing up in my grandmother's commode where I came to. And she was saying nice things. So he's, he's tossing his cookies. I had been greeting the dawn with a technicolor yawn is what I'd been doing. But as I came out of this stupor, I, I saw underneath the lip of this commode a beautiful saying. Madoc Madoric, made of Duroc. I said, God, that's beautiful. Madoc Madoric, made of Duroc. And it was then that I knew I was a seeker of poetry and beauty and truth. I spent many years looking in other facilities for sayings like that. I found Kohler of Kohler, that was alliterative. American Standard, that was patriotic. But never again did I find a, a Madoc Madoric made of Duroc. And my, many nights, had my wife been less kind, she could have flushed me to death. And I slept very close to the water. Thought I had a sinus problem till I sobered up. Uh, but my sister, who had heard my AA story before she sobered up, was familiar with the Madoc Madoric story. And I've got a little house up in the hills of West Virginia. And when she sold the family home, uh, unbeknownst to me, <laughs> I got this big heavy package in the mail, and sure enough, it was Madoc Madoric, made of two rocks. <laughs> so I made an end table out of it. <clears throat> People are saying, that's a funny looking end table you got there. I said, yeah. Looks like a commode. I said, yeah, it does. He said, well, what do you use it for? I said, I keep my important crap in there. That's what I do. <laughs> so, a little bit about mom. Mom was my... My best enabler, my best drinking buddy, she had what we talk of in the family as the Irish curse. And, but she was a lady. She looked like Catherine Hepburn. And after a couple of scotches, she would talk like Catherine Hepburn and played it to the hilt. She was a great, highly educated woman. She was wonderful. She was beautiful. And she uh, she taught me a love for poetry and arts and beauty and music and all sorts. Of, and good scotch, by the way, is what she really taught me. And she was a marvelous woman. I thought that uh, because she was so cool that that's what drinkers were like. I'd come home from college and she would say, Michael, let's go hoist a few. And I'd say, okay, mom, beloved mother. And she would throw on her mink stole and her diamonds. We'd go off to some saloon somewhere and we'd walk in and she would say something like, barkeep, stay me and my squire with flagons of ale, for we are weary and our throats are parched from the dust of the road. <laughs> barkeep say, huh? She say two Budweiser's Cretan. <laughs> I learned some cute stuff. Everybody's cute at the bar at one time. When you're broke, you got to come up with something. So I, I thought I'll be like mom and I'd memorize some stuff. But if you want to go back out there, here's a good one you can get your drink. So you might want to take notes on this one. Uh, the last stanza of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. You're sitting there, you're about out of booze. You say, and when like her, Osaki. You have passed amongst the guests, stars scattered on the grass, and in your joyous errand you have turned upon the spot where I made one. Turn down an empty glass, and some jerk will fill it up for you. You might want to use that. But most of the time I just poop my pants in public about three times a week. Uh, I wasn't that cool. Uh, I don't want to tell you too much about, you know, I, got, I, I didn't get in real trouble till I got away from home, went to college, University of Missouri. Majored in introduction to, minored in chugalug. I have, I have 160 hours of college credit and no degree. Uh, was great. A little of this, a little of that. But, uh, I, I did learn how to drink by myself there. And I was at a place called the Italian Village one Sunday afternoon, uh, laying under this table. And she was dancing on top of it. And I fell in lust, love, with the lovely Elizabeth, and I pursued her, and got her pregnant, and we got married. That's how we used to get engaged in the 50s. Uh, and and we got married and, and had four more. Bam, 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 bam. That's what good Catholic alcoholics do. Keeps our women at home. Didn't work with Liz, bless her heart. She had the Irish curse, too, but even though her name was Lagerbrink. But it was wonderful. We started the geographic cure together and ended it together. Uh, it, it got, it was not a pretty sight. By the time 
I was up visiting. I, I was. I went to work in St. Louis for a candy company and helped put a very successful candy called Sweethearts on the market. And uh, I helped design the package and all sorts of things. And these people were threatening me with a career. So I had to get out of there. <laughs> so I'm up visiting. By this time, mom and dad have split. Okay, because uh, dad didn't have Al-Anon and mom didn't have AA. And the tension got too much. And as soon as us kids were grown and out of the house, blam, they split. Now, for Mr. Guilty, that, of course, was my fault. It was my fault that they stayed together so long. And so it gave me something else to drink about. So I'm up visiting mom in the old family home up in Wisconsin where she's moved. And uh, we're hoisting a few. And I could always tell mom was going to get eloquent when she began to examine her ankle. See the white socks? This is required in North Carolina. Blue suit. A.J., I'm sorry. I know it. A.J., who is uh, a picture of sartorial magnificence, uh, displayed himself before us this morning. Like your beaded Indian belt, it's really nice. Uh, but Mom was examining her ankle. And I said, this is going to be a period of eloquence. So I prepared myself. And she said, Michael, yes, beloved mother, you majored towards the end of your college career in speech and dramatic art. Did I say, yes, I did, beloved mother. She said, there is a, uh, a personality at radio station WPLY in Plymouth, Wisconsin, who's losing their afternoon man. He's going to start his own polka band. You could probably have that position if you desired it. I said, I probably could, ma'am. Well, we were hoisting a few together. She said, the station manager's name is Dalton Hilly. You should give him a call. Well, why not? So I called him up. And back in those days, radio announcers were supposed to sound like they carried their cojones in a wheelbarrow. So I called this guy up. <clears throat> he says, yes, how may I help you? I said, I'd like to talk about the radio announcing job. Why don't you come over? We'll discuss it. So I careened 14 miles down the road, blue and white smoke coming out of the back end of my car. And I pull in this radio station about the size of this podium. It's a 500-watt daytimer. And I go in and Dalton Hilly says, Mr. Wayne, what makes you think you're qualified to work in this particular broadcasting modality? I said, well, I read and speak English. He says, that's better than I've got now. Can you start Monday? So that's how I broke into the wonderful world of broadcasting. Moved everybody from St. Louis. Uh, within a few months, I had gotten a better job over in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. The first time I ever got fired for being drunk on the air. I was doing okay. I was getting the records on. Somebody called up and wanted to know something about a news story. I said, well, it's not available to me. The news staff has gone home. He's really insistent. So an insult joke from Davy the Nose Bold in St. Louis came bubbling up through the beer. And I said to him, sir... When your head comes to a complete point, see your doctor and have it lanced. I hung up on him. <laughs> he was the, uh, he was the next door neighbor of the lady that owned the radio station. And 15 minutes later, I was looking for work. So we ended up in Marshfield, Wisconsin in the mid, in the late sixties. And by this time, we've got five kids and it's just not a pretty sight. You know, Liz and I are both drunk and, uh, the two-year-old saying, oh, God, only two more years, I can go to kindergarten and get the hell out of this dump, you know. It was a zoo. I mean, it was truly a zoo. You see, because she was a drunk. Liz was a drunk. By the time we stopped drinking, her maintenance was two quarts of vodka a day. Of course, I was proper. I drank with the boys. She hid her booze, like my mother did. So she was an alcoholic. I was sober for a couple of years before I discovered I hid my booze, too. What I do is I drink as much as I could possibly hold and then disappear for a couple of days. I, I just hid my booze in a different container, that's all. Me. Uh, uh, things were not well, and I, was, I, was, I also got into television about that point, so I'm doing, I'm doing radio in Marshfield and television sports over in Wausau, which is a 60-mile drive. You can do a lot of drinking going back and forth to various jobs. And never going home where she is. And the best defense, of course, is good offense. So I'd come home half in the bag, kick down the door and say, you've been drinking, haven't you? Huh? <laughs> Al-Anoners will understand that I needed AA and Al-Anon. 
I would, she would always hide her booze in the same place, in the dandy diter, diaper bag, you know, with all the diapers were used. And we didn't have those paper things back in those days. And I very self-righteously walk over and reach down in there and pull out her vodka, you know, bleaching my hair on my arm up to my elbow. <laughs> there, you slut, you drunken thing, you know. And here's where the sickness really happened, you know. I'd walk over to the sink and uncork that baby and pour the drink I was dying for down the sink, you know. I showed her. And then I'd pass out, and she'd get what money I had left, get some more, and then the circle would start again. I'll give you the week in the life of a drinking alcoholic because I want to get sober here. No, I don't want to get so I'm already sober here. Don't don't get nervous. I want to get sober in this particular portion of my recovery story. My mother calls up and says, Mike, could you come over and spend a couple of days? Uh, I need to go to the hospital. And would you tell? So I did. And they put her in the hospital, opened her up, closed her up, said, take her home, make her comfortable. So being the good alcoholic that I was, I called my sister in Washington, D.C. to Come take care of mom because she's on the way out. I called Liz. It was one of the few times we still had a phone over in Marshfield. She said, oh, Mike, hurry home. I just put Eddie, our baby, five months old, in the hospital. He's died twice. He's got some rare lung disease. They don't know what it is. She loved those babies, so she went from two quarts of vodka a day to zero. By the time I got over to Marshfield, I found her on the floor with one of our neighbors standing over her. She had had a grand mal epileptic seizure as a result of going cold turkey. So she's in the hospital. Mom's home dying. The baby's in the hospital. What am I to do? So I called Whitefield, North Carolina, where the in-laws are, Jack and Ed. One of them was a woman. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Jack. They also had a daughter named Jill, Jack and Jill. Strange family. So I said, Ed, that drunken slut is in the hospital again. Eddie's in the hospital. My mother is dying of cancer. Okay. I need Jack up here to help because I'm a very busy, very important broadcaster. We have four other children that need to be taken care of while this woman does something about her alcohol problem. So Ed knew what it was like at my house. So he drove 18 hours, dropped his wife off, didn't even come in for a cup of coffee, turned around and drove back. So it was Saturday, and that night I put Jack in the hospital with a gallbladder attack. This is a good case for the poor me, poor me, pour me a drink thing. So how did I handle that? I'll let you know. I drank. And the neighbors watched the kids, and everybody got well, and... uh my uh, father-in-law came back up and grabbed the whole family and took them down to Whiteville, North Carolina, while I waited for my mother to die, which she did. And here goes the guilt. Watch guilt, new people. It's hard to be guilty for what you're guilty for, but don't make an art form out of it like I did. Because, you see, alcohol did something to me. As I traded off spiritual things, things that made me feel good about myself or alcohol, my ego was still intact. So if I couldn't be the best at something, I figured I must be the worst. So I set out to be the worst in my own mind. And I managed to prove it to a lot of other people that I wasn't all that great. You know? But I was I needed guilt to support my ego thing. So at my mother's funeral, one of the relatives said, you killed her. You and Liz, the way you live your lives, you killed her. And I accepted that because it gave me power over life and death. So watch your guilt. I was sober for a couple of years before I actually copped to the fact that my mother did die of cancer. I didn't do anything to keep her alive, but I certainly didn't kill her. So guilt for me, somebody with an ego like mine, can be a very dangerous thing. It doesn't mean that I don't have guilt, but I'm only guilty now for that which I am guilty. A.H. taught me that. We ended up down in North Carolina. I borrowed enough money from my dad to uh, take a bus down to North Carolina, left all the furniture. I've left at least 50 houses full of furniture somewhere as we continued our geographic cure. And we got to, uh, I got to North Carolina, but I, I, took, I took the money he sent me for the bus to Chicago. That's as far as I got. And I drank the rest and arrived in North Carolina in 1968 on the back end of an empty tobacco truck. Mr. Broadcasting. Two weeks later, Liz is in a rehab, and I've got a job as the drunken 11 o'clock newsman on Channel 6 in Wilmington, North Carolina. That was fun. We come down, we get a place on Wrightsville Beach, and uh, she gets picked up for public drunk. You see, I was always covering mine. 
I had a job where I worked from one in the afternoon until 11.30 at night. And then I drank. All night long where nobody could find me. But Liz was always doing her thing in public. And I know what it's like to have the social services people pick up your children and take them away while you're gone. And then the, the thing that has... I know what it's like to be called white trash and fit the description very well. We lived like animals. And here I'm sitting on television every night trying to look like Mr. Cool when I'm shaking it up. It was uh, not... It was so uh, Wrightsville Beach was... So we moved to Carolina Beach where I live now, where she burned down an apartment. Things got a little hot for us on Carolina Beach, so... Uh, I moved to to Newburn, North Carolina, where I ran out of excuses. I went to work for a guy who'd known me in St. Louis when I was going to college. And he'd offer me a radio job then, and just so if God, whose face I had spit in all my life, was following me around. They discovered, like in this little town in Wisconsin, Eddie, our youngest, they discovered him to have the youngest case of the Hammond-Rich syndrome ever discovered. They started treating him with massive doses of cortisone. As a result of the discovery of, of his disease that young, there's a lot of other people walking around alive today uh, because of that discovery. So despite the fact that I'm living a total, as I was telling the kids last night, I did not come into AA walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I had pushed all that away. I didn't want anything to do with God. Blaise Pascal said many years ago that God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. So by the time I got to AA, God was this guy with a long beard, three teeth missing, hiding behind a black cloud saying, Ah-ha! He did it again. <laughs> ah, when I get you, you're going to go to 25,000 years of purgatory, and then you're going to hell. I quit going to church. I, I just, Everything was wrong. Here's God looking out for me and mine while I'm spitting in his face. What an amazing, loving God, the second tradition I found here. Well, anyway... Things weren't going well. I ended up working for Bill Jeffrey, and my I, I had this thing about, in order to get enough money to drink, I had to write a lot of checks. And didn't necessarily mean I had any money in the bank, but... So I was, uh, I'm coming to work one day, I'm doing the... Why did they always give the, the drunk the morning show? I don't know why they do that. He hit the floor running at 5.30, and why is good? Got this monumental fear of electricity, and in those days you had to turn your thing out... Then I jump in, okay, everybody, let's rock and roll, and then I puke in the wastebasket. It was getting nasty in there. So Big Bill Jeffrey called me in one day, and he said, Mike, you're going to have to do something about your drinking bar. Oh, no, no, it's Liz. Remember she failed rehab? No, no, he says, I've got a stack full of $10 checks you've written in saloons around this town. This is a small town. Everybody knows me and used to respect me, except for the people I hire. And these have your signature on them. You've got to do something about your drinking problem. I call that primitive intervention therapy. Uh, y'all, any of you ever subjected to intervention therapy? It's something that's come up in the therapeutic community in which the family member, well, the way we used to do it in Washington, D.C., where I lived for many years, is we would rent RFK Stadium and put the suspect drunk on a folding chair on the 50-yard line. And everybody they knew in their lives, waved to on a bus, had casually run across or sitting in the stands. And the drunk is in denial. So he looks around and says, what's this all about? We, 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 we think, gang, 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 yo, 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 have a drink, gang, gang, pop. And the drunk in denial says, who, me? So what? You'll be fired, I'd, I'd go throw to jail, they'll, they'll run out of town unless you go to rehab, bam, 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 bam. And the drunk says, let me think about it. Eh? Well, I was subjected to, in 1970, we didn't have, we had primitive. And Bill says, you've got to do something. I said, what what if I don't? He said, three things are going to happen. A, I'm going to beat you into insensibility. B, I'm going to fire you. And C, I'm going to have you thrown in jail for misappropriation of corporate funds. Well, dear hearts, no one had ever explained alcoholism to me that clearly before. Within 15 minutes, I'm downstairs. Our little station was in the upstairs in the Holiday Inn. I'm down in the coffee. I didn't even know they had a coffee shop. I pooped my pants in the Sturdy Beggar Lounge three times a week before that. I was not a good drunk. I had lost control of my bodily functions. You think I look ugly now? You should have seen me then. But uh, I'm sitting there talking to a guy, or listening to a guy talk, trying to drink coffee. Okay? His name was Jack G. Now, 
He was about six foot eleven, weighed 112 pounds. Looked like a swamp crane. He's sitting there drinking his coffee, and I'm going. Blah, blah, blah. I was thrown out of a saloon in in Houston, Texas, in 1964. The bartender says, "Careful, sir. Some of that's getting in your mouth." Yeah. And that's the way it was. And and something happened. Jack G had been sober 14 years, former liquor salesman, and he was telling me, "Now, Mac, here's the way it works." He was telling me about his... He wasn't telling me about me. He told me about him, and about ten minutes in, I said, My God, that's alcoholism. Liz has that. (laughs) Five minutes later, I said, Oh, God, so do I. He says, If you want what we have, he said, We only got but two meetings down here in a week. He said, The next one will be Friday night down at the Mayola Milk Plant, Avenue D over on at eight o'clock. Now, I ain't going to come and get you. Now, if you want to stay sober between now and then, this was a Tuesday morning, he says, what you do is you get on your prayer bones, which is North Carolina for knees, and you ask God. He says, you know, we talk about higher power. He says, you're a pretty sick puppy. You need God now. <laughs> you ask God to keep you sober through this day, and then you get down on your prayer bones at night, and you say, thank you. And if you can make it through Friday night while y'all can be here, I was on fire for a day. I went back upstairs and the phone rang. Of course, we didn't have one at home anymore because it required paying the bill. Liz had the checkbook, which is now one of these three ring jobs because they won't let me put it in my pocket. She's on the A&P store phone and says, if you don't put me in detox right now, I'm going to drink it till I die. Hold on, says I. I just joined AA. <laughs> so I called Jack G. He puts me in touch with the great gray wheeler. Isn't that great? Roundup in the sky who was running the news clinic, says, bring her on in. We'll put her in detox right now. So I jumped in the car, blue and white smoke, going out behind. Uh, she'd had a change of heart, of course. So I saw her rounding the corner, you know, trying to get away. Well, we played this thing out drunk many times, up over the curb, and I tacked her in front of the, I just tackled her in front of the Triumph Palace Seafood Market, put her in the car. I have a powerful right arm, because she was always going to jump, you know, ever, always. And, oh, don't jump, I mean, the kids are screaming in the back, you know. I'm jumping, and oh, God, it was all... Skinny but powerful. I got a right arm. I could crush walnuts in my elbow. <clears throat> so I drag her out to the detox, and I take her and sign her in very proudly as a chronic alcoholic. Now, I didn't know what that was, but I knew whatever the hell she had was worse than what I had. So she gets out, and first thing you know, we find we're down, two of us are down Avenue D of a Friday night. Neither one has had a drink since Tuesday. We're just fine. We're in good shape. And a guy by the name of Pee Wee, who was an itinerant house painter, was telling a story, and I identified him, this drunken disc jockey. I, t- I said, God, oh, this is wonderful. Down there, they work on the chip system. So they offered a white chip, which for beginners, and I went up and I had one of those. And I looked, and there was Liz getting one, too. And then the magic thing happened. Everybody went. I'm a sucker for applause. They told me if I stayed sober for 90, we didn't have 30-day chips then. Five days over for ninety days, wall to wall, back to back, cover to cover, I'd get me another one of these chips. Good deal. <laughs> now, the tradition says that Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of attraction rather than promotion. You must remember that I got AA right away. I was sober an hour and a quarter, and I was on my first twelve step <laughs> with Elizabeth. And <clears throat> so you know that I'm special. And I became brilliant the next day, too. It was wonderful. I remember standing up, sober 30 days, at a Monday night meeting where the average sobriety was 2,000 years. (laughs) And I said with all the depth of my feeling and conviction and belief, I said with this mouth, it is my belief that we can work all 12 steps at once. And a great hush fell over the room. Good. I was despicable. I was so bad they had to take turns sponsoring me. And each one of them would remind me that damn Yankee was still two words. Okay. God. I must tell you, they didn't care about my feelings. 
I'd be sitting on my hands, shaking it out, you know, so I'd, and they'd say, look at old Mac, is he nervous? No, he ain't nervous, he's just quick, and how quick is he? He's so quick he could thread a sewing machine while he's running. Then they tend to teach me because I got so brilliant. Uh, see, these guys, because they talk different, were ob- obviously stupid. And they talk Southern, which means they had absolutely no education. I had been to college for 200 years myself, so I was brilliant. So I'm sitting there in this little clubhouse, and I'm reading the big book. And this idiot, who's only been through the fourth grade, comes and says, What y'all reading there, Mac? So I'm reading a portion of chapter five. <laughs> Is that right? Look at the front of that there dust jacket there. What does it say? It says, it is the text, the basic text. Uh, and he says, college boy, just what is a text? I said, it's a vehicle for accumulating knowledge, passing it on. And he says, uh, tell me, college boy, uh, where do textbooks begin? I said, normally on page one. Wrong, he says. This textbook begins on page I. It goes to I, I, then I, 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 then I, V, then V, V, I, V, I, I, and so on. And then your skinny, Yankee, drunken ass comes to page one. <laughs> Maybe a good idea if you started this here program at the beginning like the rest of us did. I was pistol whipped through the twelve steps. <laughs> kicking and screaming. And learning. They had to speak to me in parables. I got to carry the big book on 12 steps. Mac would go to somebody and the guy say, Mac, you, you know, you, you ever call somebody for a 12-step call and then wish you didn't have a telephone? If you pull it out of the wall, maybe it never happened. That's where this guy was. We show up and this guy said, Mac, what do you say? Just let me have one shot of vodka hour and I'll taper off. Mac looked at me and says, two things ain't going to happen, Billy Bob. He says, I ain't going to borrow myself out of debt and you ain't going to drink yourself sober. So I had to learn by parallels. I went up to Charlie V. I wanted Charlie V to be my sponsor. Smiling all the time. So Charlie which says, what the hell for? I said, you, you're just happy all the time. He says, I'm the most miserable SOB in AA. He says, if I don't hold my mouth like this, my tuna back will fall out. So, Hayes, if you're with us today, watch your dipping stuff, boy. I could get you in trouble. Tried to get him to talk last night. He was busy dipping. But uh, they were not nice to me. And I would say, well, I can't go to those meetings at Deep Run and and, uh, Havelock and Cherry Point and all those places because I'm a very busy broadcaster. And Elizabeth, you see, is in the program, too, and we have these five children. The Al-Anon ladies came over and babysat the kids while he took us to separate meetings. No excuse. The tradition says it's a program of attraction rather than promotion. I, I beg you to tell you that in North Carolina, if you've been attracted once, okay, your ass is theirs. <laughs> and that's why I'm sober today, because a bunch of illiterates taught me how to read and uh, taught me a lot about ego deflation and depth. Okay, they didn't care about my feelings. They just wanted me to stay alive so they could laugh at me. Of course, I was on fire for AA and did all the things my sponsors told me not to do. My friend Zoot was any Alanons here? I hope. I love you. No, no terrorists in the house. <laughs> uh, Miss Emmy, my best drinking buddy, was Zoot, and I sobered up and I wanted Zoot to get away. Well, he was the chief fire inspector of the city of Newburn, and he'd been told by his, his boss <coughs> that if he was ever caught downtown drunk again in his uniform, he was out of the department, he was through, no retirement, no nothing. Well, I'm out cruising in the green machine on Saturday morning, seeing whom I can save, and Zoot falls out of Caesars, wearing his uniform, heading downtown. Now, in order to picture Zoot, you've got to picture Boss Hog drunk, okay? <laughs> so I pull up in my green chair. I say, get in, Zoot. I ain't getting in. You don't drink no more. I said, I'll take you any. Talk about a loving God, okay? Here's Mr. AA living on the edge. Get in the car. I'll take you anywhere you want to go. We go over to his bootleggers, get his booze. We go up to the Zip Mart and get his beer, and I drive him around all day. And this is when God began to give me personal revelations. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Zoot says to me, Right? By this revelation, said, My God, I do not know what this man is saying. In a further revelation, 
My God, when I was drinking with him, I understood every word. In the final revelation, was I spoke the same language. Clancy, I talk about alcoholism as disease. Oh, God, you know, I, I wrote what I thought was the greatest suicide note about six months before I got into AA. Of course, I got too drunk to kill myself. But I remember weeping at its beauty. So I'm sober about a year, and I'm getting the suit out of the back, of, you know, the one with the stuff under the arms, the crotch. I, I couldn't drive unless I had a beer in my crotch. I'd get out of the car, look like a rabid dog had bit me there. It's foam. So... This little spiral notebook falls out of the suit, and I look. I saw. Oh, I remember writing that beautiful note and weeping. And so, perception. I thought it was. I'll quote a little bit of it to you. You might want to write this down too. Uh, Wanton walls of weeping wax. Brackenfrax pegalumer. Regenerate blankamubish. The rest of it didn't make any sense. So, so you can see. I was put in touch immediately with the loving higher power of the second tradition. I was like a, a young man was talking last night. All of a sudden I discovered I didn't have anything to do with this. But this hateful God that I had conjured up was still bugging me. And uh, then we came to the second tradition. Our only authority is a loving God, as he may express himself on our group conscience. Why would I remember saying, God, why would you love me? You know what a deadbeat, you know what a sore, you know what a dirtbag I am. And God said to me, gee, Mike, I really don't know. I just do. <laughs> God doesn't talk. If God would say to me, Michael, that would be sufficient, I believe. You know. <laughs> uh, but I was taught to pray. In the big book, as I've come to know it, it's just got one prayer. They sneak prayers in on you. We ask God for this. That's a prayer, folks. You know, we've got the formal prayers and St. Francis's wonderful prayer. What I've learned to know about this loving God of the second tradition is what you have taught me. Yeah, sure, I did like the big book says. You know, I'm back being a mackerel snapper again. You know, uh, Keith Ellen, myself, after fighting God and everything, and I became a holy roller and all this stuff. I went to work for Pat Robertson for a couple of years doing television. I was the only Catholic Baptist in, in, the, in the thing, you know. And I... uh I got full of the fire, and, and I, uh, well, I must tell you this, what AA's done for me. Two years into the fellowship, Liz left me for another man, okay, and took all five kids. I went running to my sponsor, and oh, God, who, who, ah, who, whoa, me, 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 ow, 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 ow. You know what he said to me? What an opportunity for spiritual growth. If you've never wanted to kill your sponsor, get a new one. <laughs> They're awful people. Huh? I said, but everything I got so much of is your kids, Liz, gone, cars, cars, everything. He said, Mike, you skinny little Yankee. Ain't it about time you got sober for yourself, not the stuff you get comes with it. And he said, wouldn't it be nice if somewhere down the road one of them five chimneys would need you for something? Other than that check you're going to be sending out to Milford's every month. And wouldn't it be nice if they found your skinny little Yankee ass sober? Well, nobody ever explained that to me that clearly before either. So I got back on the program. And uh, gosh, years later, it's wonderful. One day at a time. 1986, the lovely Elizabeth, uh, who was a wonderful woman, uh, succumbed to an eating disorder. She went out in a flurry of correctol. And Valium and alcohol. Another loss. And I ended up with two boys. The three girls had gotten the hell out of there. Because uh, it was kind of a crazy place that she, she moved them to. The man she married molested all three of my daughters. I found out right just before she died. And then once again, sponsorship came in. I went to my sponsor, who this time was in D.C. It was a lovely man. Happens to be of the African-American persuasion. And I went to Moses and I said, Moses, I got two kids. They're going to come to live with me. And I discovered something about this man. My question to you is this. Do I kill him myself? Or do I have someone else kill him? And he looked at me and he said, Who hurt you? I said, What are you talking about? 
He said, when did you become the victim here? I said, oh, I don't want to hear this. Why don't you go out there, he said, and make headlines and really make your daughters feel good? I said, oh. So what happened instead is that um, I've had contact with my daughters and they've all got into some sort of therapy for this thing. And they were able to confront me. Why weren't you there? Why didn't you know? I said, well, because of Alcoholics Anonymous. We got together and I said, I'm sorry I was not there when you needed me. I did not know what was going on. But I was able to say, that's no excuse. I should have made it my business to know what's going on. And I asked Moses, I said, what about these two kids? One's 22, just got out of the neighbor, one's 19, spent his last year running drugs and alcohol to his mother. He never finished school. What am I going to do? What do I say to him? He says, you don't say anything to him. They're grown. They're not, they don't care what grown-ups say. They want to see what you... Why don't you try living the 12 steps? So I did. Mike Jr.'s got six years in AA. Ed's in the Navy. He's got three years in AA. My daughters speak to me. I have six grandchildren who know my name. And it's amazing. Slowly, piece by piece, one day at a time, year by year, my family is coming back together. And it's wonderful. My sister came to me and one day when I was living in the basement. I go, oh, i got to tell you, one I got married again. I was sober nine years. Living in D.C., doing pretty well. I was working in broadcasting, pretty successful. And giving my kids raises on a regular basis. And I said, I'm sober nine years. It's time for me to have a woman. So I went to Bethesda, Maryland, the Del Rey Club, 13-step headquarters for Montgomery County. <laughs> wearing my sickometer. So I, I gaze around the room at the assembled women. My sickometer went up healthy, 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 healthy. I'm sick. Meep, 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 meep. <laughs> hey, baby, I'm Mr. Sobriety. Mikey. Oh, she was perfect, too. She was only 19 years younger than me. Covered with skin all over. Curly hair and big blue eyes. I could look into her eyes and see the back of her skull. Now, that's a very sexist thing to say. So I must go further with this. Gentlemen, let me tell you something about women. They're smarter than we are. They live longer, have you noticed? It's never changed. See, what women can do, gentlemen, is split their brains and hide them up against the side of the head. <laughs> and while you're looking and they're going, oh, they're saying, gotcha, Mr. Macho. <laughs> so I married this one, and five years later, she left me for a practicing junkie. This did not leave me feeling good about myself. I moved back to Washington, D.C., and decided that I'm not good at this thing called relationships. Because <laughs> what I will, I got a sick shopping list. I'll find somebody that's as needy as I am. You know, I'd go, yes, you are needy. What you end up with is, you're like these two people, you've seen them in AA. And they come in, so not, not for the first year. Oh, well, we're different. I'm different. You see, this is ordered by God. And what you got is two ticks and no dog. <laughs> It, it it happens, you know. Well, what's happened is, is since my last disaster is that I've developed a new respect and love for women. I don't mind telling you that uh, my sponsors, who are very, very mean, just because I'm 59 years old does not mean my parts don't work, you know. But my sponsors have explained to me that I'm such a sick alcoholic that adultery and fornication shouldn't probably be part of my recovery program. So what's happened is I've got some wonderful women friends who trust me. That's new. And we talk about spiritual things like recovery. And we even talk about the God word. And it's wonderful. I am in this one relationship, though. Yesterday morning, I woke up real early because I always get excited when I'm going to fly away. And Violet was with me. She's beautiful. Four o'clock in the morning, I woke up and she was already awake and looking into my eyes. I looked at her and I said, Violet, you are beautiful even at four o'clock in the morning. And Violet said, Meow. So hey, it's taught me that if you're not good at something, just don't do it. You know? Don't do it anymore. I'm a charter member of Sex Without Partners. It's um 
Well, what's happened is God has given me, you people, the 12 steps, the big book, and a new way of life, and a loving God of the second tradition. And because St. Francis's prayer is very important to me because it's because of the last line of that prayer. It is dying that we are born to eternal life. It's because people like you have shown me what that means. There have been times in my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous when I've been really hurting. <laughs> you can tell. I, mean, I laugh about it, but I was dying. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be not here. And what happened was that you made me more important than you were for five minutes, five hours, five days sometimes, when I was falling apart because you died to yourselves. So what I know about this loving higher power of the second tradition, yeah, I go back to church now. I'm a 59-year-old altar boy. I love it. You know, I don't confuse my spiritual life with my religious life. And I can have both. I can have both because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can live a, <laughs> for me, a normal life. Oh, God. Someday I'll tell you about John the Werewolf who lives down the hall. 13 years in the program. The sick puppy. And I love him to death. But uh, what happened is that you have taught me some things about God that I didn't know. That God is indeed a God of love, just like it says. That God is incapable of not loving me. That God loves me the way I am, not the way my sick ego thinks I should be. I've learned that this loving God of the second tradition expects a hell of a lot less from me than I do because of my sick ego. If my person believes that God loves me so much he'd rather die than do without me. And you taught me that because you've done that for me. This is a marvelous program. But the program and the fellowship combined is what keeps me sober. It's those three legacies, the reason I'm standing here alive today. Because I was a wreck when I got here. I came into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous begging for a scrap of mercy. But through you people, you've rolled out to me a 12-course banquet of grace from God. And for that, and for you, I am eternally grateful. Thank you, and God bless you.